Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. This episode is devoted to the physics of materials, some at the cutting edge of research, and others that make a tasty snack. Coming up, I'm going to be talking to an award-winning scientist who uses neutron scattering to develop and characterize self-assembled organic supramolecular materials that can be used to create devices for medicine and other applications. And I'll also look into the green credentials of a new wood-based acoustic insulation. But first, I'm going to talk to three material scientists who recruit new students by sending them caramel wafers. Not for eating, at least initially, but to do bend tests on a laminated material. I'm joined down the line from the University of Sheffield by Julian Dean, Vanessa Herndon, and Stephen Birch. And we're going to talk about the physics of caramel wafers. Hi, and welcome to the podcast. Hello. Hello. Hi, everyone. So, Vanessa, you've designed a simple set of home experiments that involve bending caramel wafers. What were your goals in designing these experiments? Um, so the first thing we were looking to do was something to engage with our um, applicants. I'm the undergraduate admissions tutor at the University of Sheffield, and uh, we're trying to attract high quality students onto our course here. So there's often a long time between when they come to our open day or attend a virtual one as it was this year, and when they make their decisions about where to attend university. So as a little sweetener to remind them of who we are, uh, we decided to uh, send out a chocolate bar um, around Easter time. And rather than just sending a chocolate bar um, with no kind of science behind it, we decided to uh, design an experiment where they could get hands on with the chocolate bar, do this experiment um, and learn some material science in the process. So we all know that you learn more when you're having fun and enjoying it and when there's a bit of a reward at the end, um, should you like chocolate. Um, So we designed this experiment. Um, One of our biggest challenges was finding a chocolate bar that we could put in the post, didn't involve lots of plastic um, and that our student union uh, were happy with. Um, And so we decided to use the uh, Tunnock's caramel wafers. And so we designed this experiment and we put together our instructions and then we uh, sent out these chocolate bars to, to invite our applicants to have a go with them. So, Stephen, can you describe how the experiments are done? Uh, yeah, certainly. So the, the experiments that we uh, got our applicants to, to do uh, are known as bend tests. These are quite common uh, materials testing uh, experiments uh, and are used to examine the mechanical properties of materials and structures. Uh, so the test looks at how ductile a material is, that's how much it will bend. Uh, but it also looks at the soundness of materials, so whether there are any defects or flaws in them. It's often used in, in welded structures. When we're in industry, uh, we do the test by placing a test piece on two supports near the ends of the test piece, and we push down in the middle. Uh, this causes the test piece to bend and sometimes break. So at home, we've kind of turned things on its head. Um, so the chocolate bar is held between uh, the fingers and thumbs in each hand. So the fingers are on, top, uh, on the tops of the uh, bar, and the thumbs are as close uh, as, uh, as possible to the middle and you bend the bar by pulling your fingers down while pushing your fingers up um, 
So there are a number of variables that we considered when uh, testing the chocolate bars. Uh, in the, the paper uh, that's been published uh, on this, this experiment, we looked at uh, the, how the temperature affected the, uh, the, the properties. We warmed some of the chocolate bars up to around 30 degrees. Um, we tested some at room temperature. and We also put, put them in, uh, in liquid nitrogen, which is quite exciting because you get the... Um, the, the steam coming off the uh, the liquid nitrogen as you put the uh, the chocolate bar in. So we also looked at the orientation of the chocolate bar and how the um, the wafers are oriented. So I mean, if you think of a Venetian blind, uh, sometimes when the blinds open, you can only see the edges. Um, so at some points, we uh, we tested the chocolate bars so that you could just see the edges of the wafers. If you think about your Venetian blind when it's shut, you can only see the surfaces. So we tested some of the bars so that you could only see the surfaces of the wafers. Um, so in, in terms of getting the, stu the students and applicants to do the experiments, we, we were more looking at their observations, so what it uh, felt like, what they saw and what they heard, rather than actually getting uh, physical measurements Julian, I've I've got uh, some wafers here. I don't I don't think they're caramel wafers. They're chocolate wafers, and I think they'll be familiar to a lot of of our listeners. They're they're Kit Kats. So um, if you can sort of talk me through how I should do the experiment, I'll I'll hold the Kit Kat up to the microphone, uh, and we can listen to how it breaks. Yeah, that's great. That's great. So the first thing you need to do is we need to form a three point. Bend test. So you need your thumbs as close together as you can have them and your fingers as wide as part as you can have them. And that's called the support span. So now if you try and push up with your thumbs, uh, we can see what happens or hear what happens. Okay, and, and I should say the, the, the orientation of the Kit Kat is sort of right side up or um, looking at the open Venetian blinds. So here we go. Well, uh, I have to say it did break, uh, but there wasn't there wasn't much noise to it. I don't I don't know if you actually heard anything. So now I, I think what I'll do is I'll I'll try the uh, uh, sort of the sideways orientation, the closed Venetian blind. And and Julian, should I sh should this be different? Do you think I, I'm going to feel something different here right, when so I when be. I snap it? Absolutely. So you should feel that the amount of force that you're applying is is larger. So. See if you can feel that as you try to break it. Okay, here we go. Oh gosh, yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think the one thing that I saw you uh, do, which the listeners can't see, uh, but, but um, I'll describe, is that the the break was much more sudden in that orientation than the other. So you should right. be able to, you should have maybe felt that as a as a stronger or faster snap. Um, so the stress that you're generating from uh, from bending uh, is is effectively the distance that your fingers are apart. So that's part of the equation, divided by the width and the thickness of your material squared. So the thinner a material is, the more stress that you can generate. So the one way to think about this is trying to break a lollipop stick either flatways or or stood up. It's much easier if the lollipop is flat and you'll break it than if it's stood up in between your fingers. It's much harder to break that. And so the orientation of, of the material is, is really critical in, in the way that it will bend, deflect and break. Um, so we try and use that to, to help students understand about designing materials using 
not just the material that they have, but the orientation of it and the, and the cross-sectional area. So depending on if it's thicker or wider, you might want to design your structure with that in mind. Yeah, that, that, that was really interesting. And, and, and definitely do, do try this at home, listeners. Um, unfortunately, now I'm in the unenviable position of, of sitting next to uh, some lovely looking Kit Kats and I can smell the chocolate and I'm really <laughs> tempted to eat them, but um, I won't do that. I'll, I'll carry on with the interview. Um, so, Stephen, you, you, you designed the experiments to encourage potential students to study material science and engineering. H- what's the response been? Oh, it's been, been fantastic. We got a really good uh, vibe from this experiment and um, some really positive responses on social media. So, uh, and alongside that, we got quite a flurry of applicants accepting their offers of a place on our course, uh, which it was the ultimate aim of this, uh, really. Um, we've also had students film themselves breaking the chocolate bars and, uh, and staff in the, uh, the Department of Material Science and Engineering got involved too. Um, so taking their uh, areas of expertise and applying that to, uh, uh, to testing chocolate bars. We had some, someone suggesting they might do corrosion experiments on them, um, but I don't think that, uh, that got off the ground. So um, we initially rolled the, the campaign out um, back in uh, May 2020, um, but uh, we en- ended up doing this all digitally because of uh, COVID restrictions. Uh, we had loads of things prepared, so we've got a, a, a website about this. We've got uh, videos of uh, students uh, demonstrating the experiments and explaining some of the science. Uh, we've had videos of members of staff breaking their um, their tunnocks, caramel wafers, uh, and even getting their children to have a go um, of, of various ages, from uh, from preschool up to uh, to secondary school uh, kids. It, so it's been really good. Uh, but this year we were able to actually send out the chocolate bars and the instructions in the post, um, and so the applicants got the full experience. Um, and it's uh, it's had a lasting effect too. So staff and students are still talking about the um, the campaign. Uh, we've had lots of uh, chatter about things, but also people trying to think about what they might want to do, or what what we as a department might want to do to introduce uh, school students to the subject of uh, material science and engineering. And this all kind of contributes to um, an initiative called Discover Materials. Uh, which involves a number of uh, UK universities, uh, Sheffield included, um, all where material science and engineering is taught. And the aim of this uh, initiative is to, to work together just to raise awareness of the uh, the subject of material science and engineering. So uh, we all benefit from uh, more applications to our courses. And 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 could these experiments be integrated into undergraduate labs or or perhaps? Um labs that students do at school. I mean, I, I would have thought, you know, during the, the pandemic, um, if people are going to be doing lab experiments at home, perhaps, uh, you, you know, you could mail them a, a chocolate bar or get them to go out and buy one, um, and they could really learn something. Julian, wh- wh- what do you think about that? So, yeah, absolutely. We've sent chocolate bars to our applicants, 
and they can feel and see and hear how the experiment has worked. And then we can send them the data that we've done in our undergraduate practical laboratories, and they can compare what the experiment is to what they've actually seen themselves. Um, but we also, doing our undergraduate labs, also have another, uh, of, uh, another set of chocolate examples, experiments that we do with our students. One of those is, as you've mentioned, you're sat next to chocolate, you, you want to eat it, uh, but uh, there's a health and safety practical that we do where the students have to cool the, liquid, cool the chocolate down with liquid nitrogen and measure the toughness of it without eating it. Uh, so that's, that's a health and safety practical in itself. Um, and we also do a high performance composite chocolate <laughs> experiment where students need to purchase certain objects such as jelly sweets or spaghetti and try and combine that with the chocolate to make the toughest, the cheapest chocolate bar. Uh, and there's then design performance uh, that, that's part of material science in that as well. So it's just trying to engage students with the learning process and try and get them interested in, in what they're doing and then understand the physics behind it that, that really is, is the beauty of this. And Vanessa, what, what about future student recruitment plans? Do you have any, any sort of similar experiments that, that you'll be encouraging uh, potential students to do in, in the future? Yeah, so, so following the success of this campaign, we're keen to uh, keep up the momentum. And I'd say as an admissions team and also as a department more widely, um, ideas is not what we're short of. We're normally short of the time to make them happen. So we've got loads of ideas um, of future experiments that we can send out to our applicants. Um, and I should point out, it's it's not just attracting our applicants, it's, it's uh, raising the profile of materials as a subject. So it's an absolutely fantastic subject to study if you're interested in physics, uh, interested in the other sciences then um, there's loads for you in materials and so often it's a subject that's not known about as much so we're hoping that through this campaign and hopefully through this podcast as well a few more people might pick up on um, whether they might be interested in studying materials so um, I know that there's a, a, a new um, at home experiment planned where we're going to be sending out um, some materials to applicants to have a look at um, polarization. I'm not going to say any more, hopefully that's uh, allowed. Um, and uh, as well as this, um, we're kind of looking at, um, so that's a non-chocolate one, but I think you asked uh, whether we're planning anything else with chocolate. It's quite interesting actually. Um, this uh, campaign started a big uh, debate in our team as to whether caramel wafers from Tunnocks were better than uh, the, the Tunnocks tea cakes that they make. Personally, I'm on team tea cakes. Um, and so I'm hoping we might be able to do some rheology on the uh, the marshmallow top of a Tunnocks tea cake. Um, but that's definitely work in progress. So watch this space for what's coming out of the University uh, of Sheffield's Materials Science and Engineering Department. We've got loads of ideas. Um, we'd love to hear from listeners if they've got any ideas of experiments they'd like to do at home um, and keep an eye on our website. And, and we hope that you enjoy. Enjoy your chocolate bar now you've broken it in half. Well, that's great. Thanks. And uh, yeah, yeah. Th th thanks for reminding us that there's an, an incredible amount of material science that goes into uh, food. So if you, want to, if you want to learn more about this um, bending experiment, Julian, Vanessa, Stephen and colleagues have described their experiment in a paper called Bending Bad, Testing Caramel Wafer Bars. And that's published in the journal Physics Education, which can be found on the IOP Science website. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks. Thanks. Cheers.
Sending out caramel wafers is one way to attract prospective students. Another strategy is to give them the opportunity to work at a world-leading research facility in one of Europe's most scenic locations. That's where our next guest does much of her research. I'm joined down the line from the University of Glasgow by the chemist Emily Draper. Emily has been awarded the BTM Willis Prize for her outstanding contributions in the field of self-assembled systems, developing several methods, including neutron scattering, to prepare and characterize supramolecular materials. The award is given jointly by the Institute of Physics Neutron Scattering Group and the Faraday Division of the Royal Society of Chemistry. Hi, Emily. Welcome to the podcast, and congratulations on winning the Willis Prize. Hi, Hamish. Thanks for having me. It's a it's an honour to be invited on to talk about some talk about the prize. And so, Emily, what what materials are you interested in studying at the moment? So, what my research group is doing is looking at small organic molecules. So these are quite quite small, normally based on dye molecules, and we functionalise them with amino acids. And what we do is we assemble them in water to create a variety of structures. And because of the molecules we've chosen, they're they're conductive. So we are exploring um, how the different structures affect the conductivity and whether we can use these different structures um, to make conductive devices for various applications. So that's the kind of research that we're looking at. And, and, And what are some of the applications that you're looking at in the end? So at the moment, we're, we're kind of focused on three three different types of applications. So we've got some applications where we're looking at chromic materials. So these are things that change color upon um, either light stimulation or electrical stimulation. So for things like smart windows, so you, you know the things you see in the fancy airplanes where you can switch um, a button and they change to dark. We've been looking at um, some materials for them. We're also looking at just materials just to be used in organic semiconductors, so thin films, materials. And then more recently, we are now looking at flexible devices. So we're trying to make them into thin films that change their conductivity upon bending. Um, And these are for looking at devices to monitor muscle movement on the body or um, in particular, we are, well, I am interested in tocodynamiters, which are used in labor to monitor baby's movements and heartbeat and things like that and trying to make them more comfortable and uh, just a bit better to wear and things like that. And and what are the benefits of, of using self-assembly to make devices, um, you know, as opposed to the, you know, sort of traditional methods of, you know, let's say semiconductor processing? What, what, why is, is self-assembly attractive? So self-assembly is, you requires probably very little input from us to assemble them. So Traditional devices are made from metal, and metal can only really assemble in certain different ways. We know that the world is running out of metals, um, and you need high temperatures to process them and things like that, which all adds to the cost of these materials. We're using really, really simple molecules that, like, like I'm not a, an amazing organic chemist, and I, I can make them quite easily. We make them in large, large quantities, so therefore, um, brings the cost down. Um, and then we can assemble them in water. So there's a there's a big push for doing things more environmentally friendly, so not using organic solvents. 
and all these things. Um, we don't require high temperatures to process. We don't require any kind of extreme conditions. This is all done at room temperature, all done in air, things like that. So these organic materials have got this real advantage of yeah, cheapness. And if we want to actually get devices working and um, made on large scales, that's the kind of things we need to consider. And and because I suppose you're looking at um, you're looking at molecules, um, s- small angle neutron scattering is an important tool for your research group. C- can you describe the technique and and what it allows you to measure? Yeah, so we have to go to large scale facilities to use it. So we are basically firing neutrons at our materials, and then how they scatter off our materials um, gives us some insight into how they're assembled. So we literally just get some of our material and place it in front of a neutron beam and then collect the small angle neutron scattering from that. Um, So we can move the detector various um, distances away from our material and it'll tell us about different aspects. So um, molecule-molecule distances um, and then all the way up to the network kind of more bulk scale kind of um, structure of our materials. And because our materials are not crystalline, they're not really, really ordered, we need the small angle in order to look at them. So it's a really, really powerful tool, which things like imaging can't do because we've got these really tiny materials um, they're organic. So it's hard to do things like um, electron microscopy without burning them, <laughs> basically. So it's a really amazing tool to actually look at the structures without destroying our samples. So it's really, really important to us. And you mentioned that that you 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 do um, SANS small angle neutron scattering at at big science facilities, and I, and I think you've used the Institute uh, Laue Langevin in France uh, for some of your research, which is a, a sort of a very big um, international uh, facility. What what are the pros and cons of of using large facilities? So the pros of using the large facilities is that like. They've got everything there. Any kind of experiment that you can think of, um, they've got, you can basically design it there. So it's just like a huge beamline with different kind of stations coming off it. And you can do different experiments at the different stations. You can put um, experiment equipment in the beam to some extent. So you could put a rheometer in the beam. You can put, um, so, so something I've been designing is an electrochemical cell in the beam. Um, you can do surface measurements. Like it's amazing. and the the power of these neutrons you get amazing flux you get really great um just really great data from it and um so it's contributed to by quite a lot of different countries as well so you get like so many people from all around the world using it so even just being there you meet so many different types of people chemists physicists biologists the conversations you have over dinner and things like that can be quite interesting and then also getting to work with the beamline scientists who are experts in obviously using the beamline and it just gives you loads of new ideas of things you can come up with and stuff. So it's it's like it's invaluable going to these huge, huge facilities and just seeing how it all works. It's just amazing. If you haven't been, like it's quite hard to imagine, but it's 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 fantastic when you're there. So the cons, um, I guess <laughs> you have to use the beam 24 hours. <laughs> So sometimes it can be quite long nights, um, so you can get quite tired, but it, it's normally only for a few days, so it, it's, it's normally okay. Um, and also the whole process of applying for the time can be quite laborious. So um, they have calls, and then you have to apply, and then um, 
they, your application gets judged and then they say whether they want to give you the time or not and then it's sometime in the future so it's quite a long process so it can take maybe six months before you actually get the time so you need to be thinking ahead all the time of what kind of experiments you want to do um so that can be quite annoying and then recently obviously because of covid no one's been able to travel there we've had to send in things remotely and um yeah to be done by the be my scientists so Brexit has actually <laughs> it's absolutely caused havoc because we're having to send the samples over. Um, so things have got lost with DHL and then um, customs and no one knows what forms to fill out and they're trying to charge us all like £16,000 and things like that. So it's, it's, it's been at Brexit's probably been worse than COVID, to be honest, um, in terms of sending things over. So, yeah, that's that's one of the cons of, of using them, yeah. And what about, um, you know, your research group, um, you know, PhD students or, or postdocs, do they, do, do they see working at a big facility uh, like ILL? Um, is that something that, um, you know, that they're really keen on doing? Uh, do they find that attractive? Yeah, it's really exciting to go do fieldwork. And I think, especially when I was doing my postdoc and I got to go on my first beamline experiment, it was really exciting. It's something completely different. So normally all these students and postdocs are working in labs. So, you know, the fume hood and things like that. So getting to go to this huge like facility is just completely different. And there's all the different safety protocols, which are a bit, sometimes it's a bit like, if you think about it too much, it's a bit scary, but it's, it's just something different and it's quite cool. And you have to like scan in and you've got all your um, dos- dosimeters and everything with you. And it's something that they really enjoy doing. Um, and plus, where the ILL is in Grenoble, it's really nice. Like it's in the middle of the mountains and it's, oh, it's, it's lovely, really pretty. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's gorgeous. I know, but people go off skiing and stuff. I've never done that. Like I'm always too busy <laughs> to go off and um, do things. But yeah, it's it's a really great for thing, thing for them to do. So during um, actually the lockdown. Um, we weren't, nobody was allowed in lab and actually they were doing lots of um, the, the data fitting from the neutron scattering. So they got more into the data. And so lots of them haven't actually been yet because we've had all our beam time postponed or cancelled. And I actually got to send one of my PhD students maybe two weeks ago, not to ILL, but down to ISIS at DIGCOP. And she absolutely loved it. Like it just kind of made sense She's been looking at all this data on this screen and and then she actually got to go and collect it. So I think she was like really, really happy about that. Yeah, that, that, that's really good to hear that um, that people are starting to be able to return to some of these big facilities. Um, I mean, do, do you think that, the, I mean, is there any talk about, you know, s- sort of limiting visits? Because, um, you, you know, I, I suppose astronomers, you know, there's a big change in in how astronomy has been done. Uh, over the past few decades with with very you know very few people actually going to the telescopes which i suppose to be fair tend to be on top of mountains in chile but um i mean do, do you think that there's going to be a move in the in the neutron scattering community for people not to visit the facilities and instead send their samples in which i think would be a shame <laughs> They already have kind of a service where you do send samples in, like they call it Sans Express, or maybe not ILL, I can't remember. Um, so there is a there is a, a way to do that, but you can't really replace actually being there and collecting the data because a lot of the time you kind of have to think on your feet. Maybe things don't scatter like you thought they would. Um, so you kind of need the knowledge of the materials in order to 
tweak the experiment a little bit, which the beamline scientists are great, but obviously they're not an expert in your material. So you need really that knowledge, really, of this of the materials. And then a lot of the stuff that we're doing is um quite it's not really static samples, it's either maybe kinetic samples and you really need people there to actually press go and things like that on it. And um some of the techniques we're we're developing it have not been done on the beamline before. So yeah, we really need that kind of expert knowledge from our team in order to do it. And yeah, it just wouldn't be the same sending the samples in. We've had to do that for the past year and a half, maybe. And it's just been so difficult. Even just reading somebody else's writing on a cuvette that you've <laughs> sent them is like a bit interesting. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And so looking forward to the future, um, are there any new um, or planned neutron facilities or or upgrades to existing facilities that 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 you're really excited about that would really help with your research yeah so they're building one in sweden right now the european spallation source that's it um yeah so that looks like really really interesting and i know that they're engaging with a lot of the community you know and they've come out of all the different stations and stuff so that should be really really exciting um the they're kind of constantly always looking for upgrades and things that users are suggesting in terms of the ones that we're already using. Um, and I'm quite interested in um, USAN, so the ultra-small neutron scattering, so getting get even smaller kind of scattering. So any kind of more facilities doing that is always interesting to me. So like it's, it's really exciting working with the, the beamline scientists and suggesting new things and um even just putting different instruments on existing beam lines is is something that's really interesting to me because I love rheology as well as neutron scattering. So anything anytime we can do like wacky new rheology on the beam line is is always exciting for me. And the the beam line scientists we work with at ILL are always they tr- they must trust me <laughs> me and my and my um people I go with. So they let us do all kinds of crazy wacky things on there so i'm I'm really appreciative of that (laughs) they don't always work but they let us try anyway well i I suppose that's all part of of science isn't it yeah so 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 as a as a member of the of the sans community um what's your involvement in in the development of new instruments or facilities Are, are are there committees that that you could sit on at at ill for example that that chart the future um so I'm not involved at the moment, but I know people who are. So they do things like they might sit on committees that give out studentships and things like that, because there's a lot of studentships which are joint, PhD studentships, which are joint with a facility and certain universities. Um, So I've sat on the studentship panels for not at ILL, but at ISIS, deciding which which proposals are going to go through and things like that and who's going to get funding. I've not sat on things which... um, decide kind of which beamlines are going to get more funding and things like that but we've been asked to can basically contribute our thoughts and what things we'd like to be on the beamlines I think with the beamline scientists we've been working with anyway he's more involved in writing I guess they have to like write a proposal to get more money from the facility and kind of justify why their beamline needs an upgrade or whatever we contribute with that in terms of our papers and um, any kind of patents that we've managed to get with the help from the, the beamline and stuff. So it's kind of justifying why that beamline in particular needs like an upgrade or new equipment and things like that. 
was definitely something I'd like to get involved in more. Well, thanks. Thanks, Emily. Thanks for being on the podcast and, uh, and, and good luck with, uh, with your future experiments at ILL and elsewhere. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Some materials used in buildings are not environmentally friendly when it comes to their production or disposal. So researchers are always on the lookout for more sustainable alternatives. I'm joined down the line from Madrid by Physics World's James Dacey, who has looked into a new material that offers an environmentally friendly way of attenuating sound in buildings. Hi, James. Hi, Hamish. Okay. Yeah, not too bad. Thanks for being on the podcast. No problem. Always fun. So, so what typical materials are used today for controlling sound, and, and what sort of environmental credentials do they have? Yeah, as you say, I mean, um, these, these materials are used widely um, through places such as modern offices or, or, or lecture theatres. And I mean, people listening might be familiar with those kind of perforated boards that you see, you know, in the walls and the ceilings of, of these spaces um, to basically make them less echoey and, and, and easier to, to understand people speaking. Um, so, I mean, traditionally or conventionally, um, materials include gypsum, um, gypsum board, that's a very common one, and also things such as fiberglass and mineral wool. And, and these materials, I mean, they're, they're used for other things as well across the construction industry, and they're you know, essentially fairly easy to produce. Um, they're reliable and you know, fairly cheap, and so that, that explains why they're so ubiquitous. Um, but in terms of their environmental impact, um, I mean, it's not just an issue for acoustic panelling, it's across the industry. Um, large amounts of energy are embodied in these buildings. So it's energy that's required to produce gypsum, for example, from the raw materials, um, and also lots of water as well um, in, in the production. So there's, there's a lot of focus generally, isn't there, on um, the operational costs of buildings. So people making sure they turn off the lights when they go on holiday, et cetera. But, but actually, I think a bigger proportion of the um, carbon dioxide equivalent is actually embodied in the buildings themselves. And so you've been talking to scientists in Finland who have developed a wood-based acoustic insulation. What, what sort of advantages does that bring? Yeah, so I mean, just just looking at it um, first off, it, it can look quite similar to the products that are already out there. Um, but the, the researchers involved, it's um, Jose Cucharero and Tuomas Haninen from Aalto University in, in, in Finland. Um, and I mean, what, what they do is they basically, um, they work with wood. So it's pulped wood, which is mixed with water to create these acoustic foams. And... I mean, in terms of its production, it uses less um, carbon dioxide and water than most of those other products I mentioned. But more importantly, because it's made of wood, during its lifetime, um, it actually acts as a carbon sink. So it stores carbon um, in the, the material itself. And then at the end of its life, you can treat it a bit like waste paper. It can just be recycled into, into paper, you know, perhaps the paper that's used in the, the free newspapers that you, you see in cities. Um, and, and in terms of its advantages, 
in, in, in terms of the performance, I mean, any, any kind of fiber-based material, including those man-made materials that I mentioned, they basically work because you have these fibers with air gaps. And so the sound waves come into these materials and then the, the frictional effects um, disperses the sound or attenuates it, converting it into heat. With these wood-based fibers, they're natural fibers. So in, in addition to having those same properties, there's also natural imperfections built into um, the fiber structures uh, at different scales as well, which is important. So at the actual macro scale, you have these kinks, which you might see within trees due to the natural process, say within a trunk, because it needs to basically transport water from the ground up to the top of the trunk, which creates these networks of pores and kinks. Uh, and then when you look at the individual um, fibers themselves, they're, they're, they're not all the same. They're, they're not uniform. And then also within the, the matrices of, of fibers, again, you have this, um, this, this difference across the scales and, and the imperfections, which, which all kind of adds to the, this attenuation of the sound waves. And and so, what does this acoustic foam look like? Is it is it like a board, like uh, you know, the sort of styrofoam that you would buy uh, for um, heat insulation? Is it is it a material that's easy to use? Like I say, I mean, just just glancing at it, you wouldn't sort of think, you know, oh my god, that's completely different from some other type of acoustic paneling. Um, but I think it's because it's a natural product. Um, and also because you can vary the the size of these fiber grains, uh, you can create all different types of textures which, which blend in with um, natural materials. So I think it's particularly good, for example, for historic buildings, which might already have lots of wood paneling, for instance, where some of these buildings are actually protected. So you wouldn't be allowed to use some of the more man-made uh, products. And 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 then yeah, I think they're they're, they're coated with other natural materials, which can then be painted, uh, and, and it's all part of part of blending it in with with the surroundings. And and so the team have they've installed this material in several buildings already. I think how how did it perform? Yeah, so so the researchers that I mentioned they so they work at Alto University, but they, they also work for a company called Lumir Oi which is a small um, Finnish company that's been around for about a decade. Uh, and, and they have quite a strong research-focused approach to developing the product. So this paper, which has been published recently in Frontiers in the Built Environment, uh, that's actually um, a collaboration really between the university and the company. Uh, so they've been installing things for th these panels for 10 years, but this focused in on three recent installations in the past year um, where they've installed the panels and then done lots of scientific tests to see how um, how well they're performing. And, and the typical things they measure are, um, there's one scientific measure called clarity. So it's the, it's the ratio um, of the energy of early reflections compared to late reflections off the surfaces. And, and so the early reflections in the first 50 microseconds actually make it easier to hear people. You know, if anyone's listening, any physicists have been in an anechoic room, for example, an anechoic chamber, it's quite weird to actually speak to people. 
So reflections are not a, a, a bad thing. But then in, in buildings where you have lots of hard surfaces, like lots of hard exposed brick, you get lots of energy going into the late reflections, which then start to interfere with the way in which you can understand people. So, so looking at the ratio of those two, um, you can get a measure called clarity. And the other measure is reverberation time. So that's, I mean, normally they do a test where they release a sound of 100 decibels and then it's the time taken for that to be reduced by 60 decibels. Uh, so if you're in a really echoey place, that will be a long time. And again, that can really interfere with the, the ability to understand people in the room. So basically, they did these tests in, in three locations. And the first one was in, a, in an office space in Helsinki. So this was a small room where there was a business there. And apparently before the installation took place, people could be, you could have two people on the phone and they, they really struggled to actually hold those phone conversations because it was so noisy as a result of their colleague talking on the phone as well. So yeah, installing it basically meant that they could actually have two phone conversations. In the second example, so this was quite an interesting one where they, they broke the rules that I was talking about around, I suppose generally what you're trying to do with acoustic paneling is to cut out some of these uh, annoying uh, reverberations, but not so much that it, you know, it seems really strange and unnatural compared to the space that you're in. But it was a, an art exhibition built around a spiral staircase with lots of hard reflective surfaces again. But in this case, they deliberately installed lots of the panelling so that it created this kind of really strange sense of serenity in the space which added to the, the art exhibition. And then the third uh, example was a, it was, a, it was a room at the Supreme Court in, in Finland, where e even with the help of a AV system, people basically couldn't run meetings because it was just, it was too noisy. And the, the difficulty there was, like I said, some of these buildings are quite protected. So they could only install panels in certain parts of the room. And so I think the result there was less effective, um, but, it, but it did have some improvement while not messing up the visuals of the space. I see. And, and so, so is, this, is this a commercial product now that you could, you could put in your home recording studio or are, <laughs> is there more work to be done before um, this, you know, this will be widely available? Yeah. I mean, I think this particular company, so they're, they're a smallish company in Finland. They've got uh, I think when I spoke to Thomas, he said that there's just around 10 people, 10 employees. So I think at the moment they're, you know, they're working locally within Finland. So it's not really something that has been scaled up. But more broadly, um, there is a lot of research going into these, these types of uh, alternatives to the, the industry standards. So bio-based alternatives. So in this case, it's, it's, it's wood-based uh, but I know there is um, lots of research into, for example, things like coconut and corks, natural rubbers, cottons. I mean, basically anything that's fibrous can, in theory, um, be pulped down and, and, and turned into these materials. So, And these natural imperfections that I was talking about stand them in good stead. I guess the downside is that 
you know, when you're competing with something like uh, gypsum or concrete, you know, these are huge sort of industry standard uh, go-to products that are cheap to produce. Um, and, and, and we know that they do last decades. So that, that, that's the challenge really, to, to, to show that these other bio-alternatives have the same rigidity and, 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 you know, and don't get plagued by insects, for example, or, or they're not a fire hazard, um, which I, d I don't think in this particular case, you know, in order to, in, to get the go-ahead to install the panels, you have to meet certain fire regulations. So I don't think that's particularly an issue here. But I imagine it could be for, for certain other um, natural products. Right. Well, oh, that's, that's really interesting, James. Uh, you can read more about this new material in an article that James has written for the Physics World website. Just look for the headline, Wood-Based Foam Offers Green Soundproofing. Thanks for being on the podcast, James. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Emily Draper, Julian Dean, Vanessa Herndon, Stephen Birch, and James Dacey for chatting with me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Callum Jelf. We'll be back again next week, but in the meantime, please do check out the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. This features an interview with the physicist and award-winning author Carlo Rivelli, who talks about Helgoland, his latest book about the origins of quantum mechanics. You can find all of the Stories podcasts on the Physics World website and also at your favorite podcast hosting platform. Physics World.